0: Behold, the sword of power,
1: Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and Nothing But Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we are covering Excalibur 55, the ghost of Braddock Manor, in which smooches abound but can't save Excalibur's housewarming party from taking a dark turn. Excalibur number 55 was originally published in October 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynnis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing.
2: You know, there are two girls in my life. One's the girl I like.
0: Have you ever wanted to kiss me?
2: Come on over here, baby. And the other's the girl I live with.
3: Also, how's Wedded Bliss? Have you seen him without his clothes on?
2: You go through a lot with your best friends.
1: Love is more than just seven minutes in heaven. Welcome back to another week of Excalibur Chat, and boy howdy have we got an episode for you talking some of our favorite topics and some of our less favorite topics with one of our favorite scholars. I will introduce our very fine guest in a moment, but first, the regular partygoers. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about sex and gender and pop culture and especially superhero stuff. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and I am very excited to talk about a particular scene in this issue. You, you can probably guess which one. And no, it's not the same where Jamie Braddock curls Farron into a tree, but we could talk about that too. I am joined as always by Mav. Welcome yourself to the party.
2: So Farron gets knocked out in this book. And I mean, I would introduce myself, but there's way too much comic to talk about. So I think we should just get into it. Um, (laughs) Also, you know, because who who has time for covers? Also, um, Mm -hmm. literally, as we record, I walked in my house Three minutes ago, so I've had no time to prepare an introduction with clever jokes related to the issue, other than this, which is actually related to the issue in a weird way. But my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I'm the host of this show and another show called Box Podcast, where I talk about gender and sex and class and race. Which blew up in my face a lot this week because, again, mm. time of recording. Will Smith went crazy yeah, yeah. 72 yeah. hours ago, and um I, I know Andrew watches my Facebook page religiously, so I've been busy. <laughs> I've been busy, people. Okay. <laughs> i've I've had a lot to do as far as being like you know a culture and race and gender expert it turns out that was really busy this week so that's what i've been doing also i taught a couple of classes today like it's been it's been a full day so um i'm done
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes we are not gonna relitigate the oscars on this particular podcast but if you are interested check check Mavs social media
2: We, I mean, we could talk about Farron. That's the I want yeah, to we could definitely uh, talk about We got that. an hour of talking about Farron to go today. So I'm... I, I, no time for the Oscars. No time.
1: Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> The all-Fair all-the-time show today. That's right. Uh, Andrew, please give us your calling card.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's uh, University and the project lead for the Claremont run. And we were just talking off mic that I was supposed to be interviewed on the BBC radio last week. And we actually moved our podcast recording date for that. And then they canceled on me. me Um, so in consequence of that relevant to this pod I first owe everyone an apology Uh, and I second have to point out that I'm angry at Britain now and I don't know how that's going to affect my experience of Excalibur which is about protecting Britain and maybe I'm Team Jamie on this one. I don't know.
2: Oh, I, and, I, and off mic, I did recommend that in protest you declare independence for your nation from from the crown. Yeah, <laughs> that is. And when and, and when asked, it's always it's about Andrew. Just remember that. That's what it is. Oh, I never forgotten that. All about Andrew. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't even know what to say to that. I'm totally derailed now, but um.
2: (laughs) Uh, my work here is done.
1: Later, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So this week's Very Welcome Party Crasher is a comic scholar with a fancy new book and lots of big ideas about a bunch of stuff that we really love talking about. The pod is delighted to welcome Dr. Jeffrey A. Brown. Welcome, Jeff.
3: Hi, thanks for having me on.
1: We are thrilled to have you. And I'll tell the listeners who are not familiar with your wonderful work a little bit more about you. Dr. Jeffrey Brown is a professor in the School of Critical and Cultural Studies at Bowling Green State University. Bran is the author of numerous academic articles about gender, ethnicity, and sexuality in contemporary media, as well as seven and soon-to-be-eight books, including Black Superheroes, Milestone Comics and Their Fans, Dangerous Curves, Gender Fetishism and the Action Heroine, Beyond Bombshells, New Action Heroine in Popular Culture, and The Modern Superhero in Film and Television. His most recent book, just released a few months ago, is Love, Sex, Gender, and Superheroes from Rutgers University Press. We are very excited to talk about that today. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about your origin story with funny books, Jeff. When did you first start reading comics? What is your comics origin story?
3: I don't know if I have a comic book origin story. My, my 10-year-old <laughs> asked me the other day, he was like, what was the first comic book you read? And I thought, oh, shit, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I am sure it was Batman... I've been reading them longer than I can remember. I do remember being a kid in Montreal. My grandmother worked at a bookstore and she brought home Tintins and some asterisks, and then superhero stuff. And I just got swamped with it all. I mean, it was 70s, fun, sexy drawings, cool <laughs> stories. I think Legion of Superheroes in the 70s was my biggest thing that got me into it.
1: Well, okay. Well, tell us a little bit about how you started studying comics. What was kind of the origins of you approaching Comics as an academic.
3: I, I just wanted to study fans, really. I mean, I've been a lifelong fan of, of comic books and subcultures and fandoms and different groups were really sort of the area I wanted to get into. And my background is in anthropology. That that my undergrad and my uh, doctorate are in anthropology. So I wanted to look at fan groups, and they were hesitant. They were like, "Well, fan groups aren't different enough. You know, you need to go sit in a village somewhere in the outback or something." And I thought, "Fuck, I don't want to do that. I want to, you know." <laughs> (laughs) to the conventions and so on. And so they um, finally said, "Okay, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I got to study it and loved every minute of it.
1: Well, your first book about Milestone Comics was based on your dissertation research, if I recall correctly. Is yeah, that right?
3: That's right. Weird story, because, you know, the first couple things I proposed, they were like, eh, you know, it's not really anthropology. And I said, well, there's this new African-American company coming out with stories. And I think that'll be interesting. And suddenly everybody's like, OK, that counts. And I remember thinking, because there's the ethnicity angle, it counts. It was a strange moment in anthropology, mm, for my yeah. sake. Yeah.
1: yeah. So how did you get into some of the things that you've ended up studying having to do with sort of sex, gender and superheroes? Like what particularly draws you to talking about genre texts, action movies, you talk about a lot as well, but you do a lot of stuff about superheroes. So what keeps you coming back to the superhero genre as kind of a fruitful subject of analysis?
3: I think because it's fun, because it's still interesting, because it's amazingly important. I also think I got lucky, like many of us who are studying superheroes, it was a huge shift, right? When the movie movies started to become big. at The turn of this millennium, once X-Men and Spider-Man and the whole thing exploded, suddenly there was a craving for it. Everybody was interested in superheroes. It wasn't geek culture that you had to be embarrassed of. When I was in high school, nobody knew I read comics. Everybody's <laughs> into it. Everybody knows this stuff. So it, it became a natural thing to continue studying. I mean, they're more important now than they ever have been.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You started earlier than I did, obviously, but that's sort of followed the trajectory of some of my work, too. You think, oh, I'm just doing this for a while, and then there's just more and more superhero stuff. (laughs) So it just kind of keeps going, right? Right. Sooner or later,
3: they'll burn out. I don't want to have to (laughs) go sit in the village in the outback. So hopefully the movie will stay (laughs) popular for a while.
1: Well, can I ask you about if you have any specific history with Excalibur? Because I think when I reached out to you about it, you said that you'd read it before, but I don't know if it's been quite a while since you've read it or not. So do you remember reading it the first time around?
3: Yeah, I remember reading it when it first came out. I've got, I don't know what, the first 50 issues or so. This was an excuse to buy the Epic Collection. Oh, nice. Trade paperback. So I was glad to do that. First time around, I was a fan of Alan Davis's artwork more than anything else, I think, Mm, at the time. He did one of my favorite runs on Batman. And so I was kind of interested in following him. And the stories are different enough than the X-Men books, which were so, I don't know, ridiculously (laughs) over the top, (laughs) macho at the time, that these were a nice change of pace. They were a lot more fun.
1: All right, well, I want to get into that a little bit more in conversation with some of your research on sex, gender, and superheroes. Maybe we'll do the issue summary and and come back to that with your first impressions of this particular issue. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never kiss your paramour at the party unless we were all into it. (laughs) But as always, let's start today's celebration with a plot summary. Excalibur 55 opens on the grounds of Braddock Manor, where Brian Braddock is sparring with his sister, Betsy Braddock, a.k.a. Psylocke. At the climax of the battle, they break into laughter, Siblings! Then they start talking. Brian feels he's too quick to violence, but Betsy comforts him, telling him it's in their warrior blood. Back in the manor, on the veranda, Kurt is karate chopping planks and bricks. He's interrupted by Kitty and Megan returning from a shopping trip. Kitty wants to know what's up, why he's training his martial skills when he's customarily relied on passive fighting techniques. Kurt says he has to, because he's the leader now. Kitty reminds him that they are a team and questions him over recent events in Germany. Kurt remains evasive. Meanwhile, in the forest to the west of the manor, Cerise looks on as Kylan kneels by the grave of Princess Satine. Cerise asks Kydland to stay for the party, but he says he isn't in the mood. He bids Cerise farewell, saying he's off to find his parents. Later, the party happens as Alistair escorts Alessand upstairs. She tells him she's being court-martialed, framed for leaking state secrets to S.H.I.E.L.D. Back at the party, Satter Courtney arrives, trailed as usual by Nigel Frobisher. Satter Courtney greets Brian with a huge smooch, which prompts Megan to hit him with a bigger smooch, which prompts Cerise to hit Kurt with the biggest smooch of them all, lasting a quarter to the clock in the background, five entire minutes. From there, (laughs) things take a dark turn. Alessand is attacked by an unseen assailant. Miss Amelia Witherspoon senses the intrusion, cries out in panic. In short order, they find Alessand dead, her neck and many other things broken. As Betsy senses Amelia is in trouble, Kurt teleports downstairs to find Lockheed, Amelia, and Di Thomas all unconscious. He feels movement from behind him and dives forward toward the attacker who opens fire. He drops unconscious to the floor. As the rest of the party rush upstairs, Cerise is taken out as is Alistair. The killer tries to grab Kitty, but she slips through their grasp through the floor. As Megan, Brian, and Betsy dash toward another flight of stairs, Widget materializes, shouting an unintelligible warning. As he vanishes, a rocket strikes Brian, and Megan is incapacitated. Betsy draws a psychic blade as she goes after the attacker before being frozen in midair and hearing a voice that seems a little too familiar. Brian manages to crawl away to the next room where he sees Courtney, who he finally, finally realizes is actually <laughs> saturnine. Then Alison's killer enters the room, dragging Betsy. Jamie Braddock has returned to his ancestral home. All right, so a lot of tonal shifts in this issue, which we will try to cover in due course, but let's start with some first impressions from our gracious guest. So, Jeff, first impressions after reading this issue after so many years, anything that particularly stood out to you upon rereading?
3: A, a whole bunch. Um, I I'd imagine. This being a little silly sometimes. The tartan dress pants. Um... <laughs> cargo pants those kind of threw me off for a minute i don't remember noticing that the first time though i do vaguely remember reading this issue I think I was just struck by how much it seemed to be not just soap opera ish, but it, it like a weird key party kind of thing going on, like with all this <laughs> making out. And I was like, "Are they going to toss the keys in a bowl? What's going on?" This was a weird oh God, I wish. upscale. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was the first no, no, thing.
2: No, like, oh no, no, no! That's a good thing. I just I might have to write fanfic later. That's all. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it reads a little bit like fanfic, right? I mean, yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. it's coming across that way so yeah just the outrageousness of the kissing as sex and the openness and the fuming and grabbing somebody else to kiss boy it it seemed like a 14 year old key party <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I want to get into that, obviously, in reference to your research, but let's do a couple of other first impressions first, and then we will get into all of those kisses, which I want to talk about in depth, going full team coverage on the kisses. Um, But yeah, Andrew and Mav, I was curious about your reactions rereading this issue, because I definitely did not remember all the violence in the issue. I remembered the kissing, and then I was really thrown by the amount of violence, and we will talk about both. But yeah, first impressions from either of you?
2: I was going to say, I'm disappointed in Anna for um. Short changing the kiss, it's not five minutes. It's about seven. You've missed one <laughs> panel. <laughs> I think it's specifically supposed to be seven minutes in heaven. Like oh, okay. Because uh, oh, nice. if, 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 yeah. if you look, um, it's five minutes but if in the in the three panels to the main kiss, but she grabs yeah. him, mm-hmm. she grabs him a good two minutes before that. So I think it's supposed to be seven minutes in
0: heaven. Good call, Mav. I think I think I like this issue just in the context of the way we've been reading Excalibur for the last you know year. Davis is, in my eyes, really starting to get the distinctions between the character voice. Yeah and I'm liking that he's getting those distinctions without imitating Claremont you know what I mean he's, he's making them his own uh the character work here is really good in my eyes and then they all um, are defining themselves whilst creating internal consistency um so I'm loving that my only complaint is and I don't know if this would be an editorial interference thing I find that Davis is really trying to resolve all manner of dangling threads because oh, uh, yeah. he doesn't want the wrinkles right but I love the wrinkles and that might just be a subjective thing I, I like the messy Claremontian style of just leave everything hanging and pick up whatever you want, whenever you want to. And Davis seems to be moving against that. And to me, that reads as simplifying the plot a little bit, but that could be a very good thing in the eyes of a different reader.
1: I wonder so much about that in terms of Davis being the writer and the artist and knowing that he had trouble keeping up with the pace of this as hmm. you know a twice a month book. And I don't know, yeah. I'm, I'm psychologizing in a way that I have no right to do because I don't know, but it just so much of it feels like I know I don't have much time to get this story done. I have to get all of these plot points out there and resolved and i've just had that kind of overwhelming you know <laughs> dangling dagger feeling throughout kind of davis's tenure on the book and yeah i don't know it's odd because it's so different from claremont right who you know at, at least at the midpoint in his run felt that he was going to be there a long time and wasn't as worried about because there's so much pressure on davis he's the writer and the artist and obviously there's been yeah. a lot of fill-ins as well but the amount of work on his plate like trying to get all of this out there i mean he knows he can't do it forever you know and i always wonder how much that's a part of it
2: so my actual first and impression- because uh, my first impression was not. Oh, Anna messed up the time. Uh, <laughs> that was just what I noticed when you were reading it. <laughs> um, a lot of times, I, I always start these with, "Okay, so here's how I felt about it reading it now versus how I felt about reading it, you know, when I was a teenager." I'm thinking about this and trying to remember if I how I remembered back then because you said you didn't remember how much violence it was. I remembered these as being two separate issues, and apparently, my my memory was broken reading oh, this yeah. through. Like I remembered a very violent aspect uh, scene where Ali San dies. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remembered that. And I recalled a very silly, sexy scene where Cerise and Kurt first get, to get, get, get together. I did not recall that they were the same issue until doing my read of it for the podcast. In my head, those happened at two separate times and I guess I was wrong. So I like both of these things and I'm saying this because there's going to be some things that I'm going to be critical on this podcast and I'm just reading our Twitter feed. I think people think that I don't like this book because I'm always critical of it. Um, (laughs) And I'm letting people know. And I I will say, I will say on ones where I'm like, oh, this is, and there's been several issues where I'm like, this one's garbage. I hate this one, right? This is not this. I like this issue. Even the thing that I think probably most of our listeners are expecting us to be most negative of is, and we'll, we'll talk about it. You know, the question of fridging. I still like this issue. I think even the death of Ali sand is a net positive in storytelling where I'll be. um, I I know I'm going to, I'm doing the thing that I, (laughs) I'm doing the thing that I criticized you. Of forty some odd issues ago, <laughs> when you could, when you or fifty issues ago, when, whenever um, I guess I think it's issue five when Courtney dies, and you said the same thing, and I and for the same reason you thought that then, I think that here but I'll get to it when we get to the thing. What I think is weird and where um, I'm also with Andrew on the, I think he's simplifying too much. I think he's simplifying. And I think he, he being Davis is simplifying in a way, not just to lighten his load, but simplifying in a way where the story is tidy in a way that I think davis is interested more in this greater action-oriented narrative than the character part that i like which is not to say that i mm. which is not to say that i think he's he doesn't care about character he does he's getting much better at writing them what i what i mean is i don't need kurt to have a explicit story line that says i'm the leader of excalibur now like you've always been the leader of Excalibur. What made Excalibur interesting was that Brian didn't know that. I don't want you to say it out loud ever. Like that's a problem. And for him to say, "Well, I have to be able to do several things, so I shall practice my hard martial arts as well as the soft Like it's it's a I am establishing my role-playing game character sheet for the listener or for the reader. And I I don't like little bits like that because that's where I feel like he's trying to create special specific roles. I like that Kurt has a relationship with Cerise. I don't need it to be, look, Kurt has a relationship with Cerise. It's not Megan anymore. Megan has is, is establishing her dominance over Courtney. Like, there's tidy breaks that make me feel weird. So that's my impression this time through.
1: Well, let's get into the romancy, sexy stuff, and we can talk about our various mileage on it, because I'll leave it at that. Let's get into it. Um, And we'll get into it through uh, Jeff telling us a little bit more about his book and his research there. So Jeff, I'm obviously very sympathetic to to your thesis of that book, that we need to be paying more attention to sexuality and romance in the superhero genre, but tell us a little bit more about what kind of made you arrive at that conclusion. What made you want to write about these topics and what made you feel that romance and sex have been understudied in the superhero genre? Why should we be looking at these stories through these lenses?
3: Because <laughs> because they're fascinating, because they reveal so much about how weird we are about sex, right? Once you get mm-hmm. into superheroes and can you talk about it, can you not talk about it? And they are so dripping with sexuality in these stories. I mean, the way they're illustrated, the way they're yeah. costumed, the way they're always grabbing at each other other. But also, you know, the immediate displacement between the sex scenes or, or any hint of romance then becomes violence. And, and I think this issue in particular shows that, you know, it, it is that quintessential, we like sex, but we're terrified of sex. And these are books that are ostensibly meant for young readers and lessons in sexuality and ideas about what's going on. And really, the the gender is just a starting point. I I mean, once you get into the sexuality, rather than just how the gender is presented. And I kind of like this issue for that. I think, Mav, you were talking about, you know, Kurt beating up the boards on the patio. It seemed like, you know, there's the beginning where he has to get mo- butched up a bit, right? That he's mm-hmm. a little more fluid of character, not as macho as Brian. So what do they do? They've got him beating up on some boards while the girls are out shopping. So now that he's the leader, he has to be more masculine. They have to be more feminine. They have to, and Kurt gets a girlfriend gets a heterosexual kiss. He's shown as desirable. But all of this is teaching very clear lessons about sexuality, I think. So I think it's it's important stuff because it is subliminal, because it's not overtly about sex. That's when it's tricky, that it's teaching rules about not just heterosexual norms or things like that, but even things like how do you kiss? How do you flirt? How do you do simple things? These are lessons for readers.
1: Well, what do you find specifically interesting about the superhero genre in this respect, though? Like, what makes looking at sexuality in the superhero genre different from looking at sexuality in other genres? How is it different than looking at sexuality in the romance genre, in the horror genre, in the sci-fi genre?
3: I think sexuality in all those other genres is really interesting. I mean, I think the literature on horror <laughs> and romance, what are monsters, how do they reproduce, uh, are they metaphors for STDs, what are they, is all fascinating stuff. Stuff. The superhero, though, is so over the top. Like it's so hyperbolic, right? Nothing is ever just, hey, let's talk it out. It's it, let's immediately start blasting bodily fluids at each other. You know, this is <laughs> overdone. And I, I do have a chapter in the book about orgasms. You know, that this is all it's symbolic. And my students always like, oh, you're reading too much into it. I'm like, really? Too much into it? <laughs> um, because every time somebody shoots these things and then they're exhausted. It and they need a moment to recover. You know, it's essentially an orgasm that saved the world and it's stuff that... <laughs> don't they about. all? Hey, hey, don't they all? Yeah, you know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Maybe it's the death of us. You know, why do superheroes die and come back? Because they, they give their all. Superman fights Doomsday and then is exhausted at the end. After he penetrates Doomsday in the movie, he lies there exhausted and, you know, he just needs a little refractory period where he gets it back together and comes up again, so to speak. So, yeah i I think just the obviousness of the disguised obviousness of it of what's going on and the frustrations and how it's played and that it's so simply disguised because the argument is well, superheroes are for kids, right? That that's where it started. Mm-hmm. So you can't deal with sexuality. And that has changed so much now because you've got different levels of comic books. So I think they're they're addressing it in a lot of very different ways, um, ways that I'll, many in the audience are internalizing without necessarily being critical of.
1: Well, hmm. why do you think super sex is particularly controversial? I mean, obviously, sex is controversial in a lot of different spaces, especially when we're talking about diverse, non-normative sexuality is more broad. But within this genre, it is face-specific censorship. And I mean, do you think it's just the idea that we have that superheroes are for kids? Or is it something more than that? I mean, think about something like the heroes don't do that discourse. You know, what makes us uncomfortable with the idea of superheroes having sort of rich and varied sexual lives? And when I say us, I mean, not us on this podcast, but certain other people who don't want to see Batman do that
3: right you three all know that batman has sex right
2: hundred uh, it's all i think about okay
3: <laughs> <laughs> just want to make sure we're on the same page here batman is a fictional character but that fictional character has a penis and he uses it um, i've seen
2: it in- i have a book <laughs> there you go. Exactly. There's a the book it. where it very clearly he has a penis. Yes. Yeah.
3: Fine. <laughs> Although then it had to get censored. So, black
2: labeled. Yes. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just wonder if our listeners know what I'm talking about at all. But yes, there is a Batman comic where his penis is drawn and then it was a big kerfuffle. It's a different. It was recalled.
1: Yeah. Batman Damn number one. But yeah, I should ask Jeff because I've been saying that my book, Super Sex, which Jeff is in, is the only in print place that you can currently see the uncensored image. But is it printed in your book as well? Do I have to revise that claim?
3: No, no, I didn't. <laughs> there is a picture of a superhero porn parody, which ironically does not show nudity because the costumes are much more important there. But uh, mm-hmm. no, no no, penises on display. You still get that one claim.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, it- sorry, we totally derailed you though. We were talking about why, why <laughs> certain people are uncomfortable with having sexuality in this space.
3: I do think, you know, a majority of it is because it's associated with kids and our own nostalgic childhood, I think, for a lot of people Mm -hmm. but they're the ultimate neutered characters right i mean the whole underwear on the outside but it's not really covering anything it's sort of the ken doll missing a penis sort of thing even in the superhero movies you know, Captain America was a virgin until the what movie four or something. So they don't want to muddle those, these icons with sexuality at the same time that they eroticize them so much. It really is a wanting to have your cake, but not eat it too sort of thing. Like let's show them as sexy and hot, but not sexually active.
1: I mean, what is the source of that prohibition? I mean, why is it so strong, you know, in this space?
3: Because I think because American culture, and I say this as not an American, is really grounded in these Puritan ideals that still seem to hold sway of, of being prudish, of denying these kinds of things. We're still seeing, you know, chastity pledges and, and what do they call them, the um, virginity rings and things like that, that there really is sort of this moral panic about people having sex in the U.S. where these books are coming from that I, I don't think is identical around the world. I, as a Canadian in the U.S. now, I'm amazed how many friends, friends, when they talk about high school sex education classes, they say all they were taught was if you have sex, you die. And I said, wow, that wasn't my experience growing up in Ontario. But people are still saying that my eldest son, who's 21, he, I was talking to him about it the other day and he said, yeah, just a couple of years ago in high school, they told us if you have sex, you die. That's your education. So, I, I, yeah, it really is a strange disconnect. And so I think the superhero's bashfulness is born out of a fear of, of alienating readers. And there's been enough backlashes. I can understand why the publishers are concerned about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been the idea of the hero that we have in the superhero genre has often been described as very linked to American identity and certain ideals of the American hero, which have historically been almost unique, not uniquely sexless, because that's not something that doesn't exist in other cultures in terms of, you know, warriors who deny their base impulses in order to be better warriors. That's not a specifically American concept. But there is a Historical legacy of heroism and sexuality not being able to coexist in certain icons of American mm-hmm. heroism, and that has certainly been something that many scholars of the superhero genre have talked about. And yet, of course, all Lawrence, of us, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: Hewitt and Lawrence, Hewitt yeah. uh, and Lawrence, uh, just, and I was going to mention the book so that yeah. people could get it if they care, but they're hard books to read. are a lot. those are pretty heavy academic books for what we usually recommend on the show.
1: We can certainly link it in the show notes though mm-hmm. for those people who might be interested. Mm-hmm. But all of us here have also talked though about. The superhero genre as being a potentially liberatory space for some of the reasons that Jeff has talked about, right? I mean, the fact that it works so hard at repressing sexuality a lot of the time and yet it emerges in sometimes strange ways almost on account of that repression which is one of the things that particularly fascinates me and we talked about that a lot when we talked about issue 50 and the scene of everybody stepping inside each other which was incredibly sexual and yet also very metaphoric and that's sort of a classic mm-hmm. example of presence and absence, right? So go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear that discussion again, but <laughs> but um, but let's talk about the specific space that we have set up here, because Jeff already brought up the ways that this is a, a very sexy space of this party. And and let's talk about some of the ways that it's sexy. And I'll bring Andrew and Mav into it because I know you both have a lot of thoughts about sex and superheroes, too. So what makes the context of this party sexy like how is it advertised to us as sexy and why is this such a particularly sort of sex charged space and does it intersect with anything having to do with superheroes or superpowers or things that are specific to this genre
2: I find it interesting that Jeff called it basically a key party I find it interesting and I think one of the weirdnesses of it is that maybe because I read and talk about one of these every week and have been for the last year so it seems actually light on the sexy Uh, Well, actually, it's on the sexuality for Excalibur. It's certainly sexy. They're dressed up in like, you know, evening gowns and like tuxes, Mm. weird pants. But, you know, still like it it is it is it is glamorous in a way Mm -hmm. that is, you know, glamorousness is about being sexy. But this is not, you know, we're three issues removed from them literally entering each other's bodies. Right. Like, so it's (laughs) like, I, like, I think it's a little different, right? I do think it's sexy. I do think that there's a lot of relationshipy stuff happening. The fact that there's basically three solid pages of kissing that seems explicit. Now, I mean, it's anything, it's not three solid pages of intercourse, but it's three solid pages of panel after panel after panel of a clear intimate action. Jeff talked about, you know, you'll, and I've done this as well, right? Like you have students, you have even just random geek. That you might need the comic store. Who are like, you? Always read sex and everything. I mean, this is one that you can't deny because it's explicit. So that helps. But like, since I read the stuff that isn't as explicit, like I'm, I'm sure there are people out there who, when we talked about all the cream pies all over everybody, and people are like, "That's you're, you are being filthy." It's not like that. And so this is one they can't <laughs> do that with, right? So I guess that's something.
0: Yeah, I think there's a there's a genre element at play here as well. This is cozy mystery, which is like um, Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. uh, and if anyone's read Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, I mean, sex and violence are are deeply intertwined and create a sort of, um, I guess, just intertwining sense of menace. And I think we get that in the story. It's at night. It's a party. It's Excalibur. We know the violence is coming. And that's very much played up throughout the issue. So you've got this tremendous sense of anticipation. So you've got all these people together for the first time. They are dressed out gorgeously. The fundamental conflicts established are romantic, at least initially, while we know the violence is coming. So anticipation and tension is just all over this thing. I think that's supercharged. Is the sexuality of it even before they start kissing.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, I was thinking about the visualization of it too, and the ways that we can talk about presence and absence there, because, you know, Mav's right that it's explicit in a way that other things weren't, because it's not metaphorical. These are actual kisses and everything. But those two pages, like in particular, like pages 14 and, and 15, for those of us who have page numbers, <laughs> we have part of the Brian, Satter Courtney kiss, and then the Brian and Megan kiss, and then we have the Cerise and Kurt kiss on the next page. The visual language here. We've talked a lot about Davis's kind of skill as an exploitation artist and there's a lot going on in these images in terms of things like the hair grab, you know, which sensualizes these images. You know, a detail like that and especially when you render it very naturalistically really lets you imagine yourself in that moment. You know, things like, yeah, yeah. And like things like the way Megan's hair drops, you know, in the Mm -hmm. midst of the kiss, she gets disheveled, right? As though they had just had sex and she is disheveled in the wake of it. Right? We get her shoe mm-hmm. coming off. And even he does a really nice job in the Megan and Brian kiss. You know, she's wearing the strapless dress and he actually does quite a nice job with her breasts there. They are pressed against his chest and they are physically, like visibly squished against his chest. And I thought, like, a detail like that is really nice as well, the way it brings you into the physicality of that moment. Again, in a more naturalistic way that we sometimes see in the superhero genre, in which breasts do not typically behave like real breasts. And it's not that Alan Davis's breasts usually do. But but in that particular moment he did he did exercise some care which I appreciated so there's just a lot of things like that going on throughout the sequence the fact that those two pages in particular have very little dialogue as well ups the sensuality we're encouraged to kind of spend time in the images rather than kind of racing through based on the words and I love what Andrew's bringing up about the tension because in anything like a comic or a movie or whatever you know if we talk about body genres more broadly body genres can refer to horror and violence and sexuality and this is just sort of like it's upping our emotional level it's upping sort of our nervous energy and that can be expelled in different ways and I really like that read of it we are getting excited you know at this point in the comic book and then there's going to be a shift in the nature of that excitement later on the more that I'm thinking about it the more that I'm thinking about that's actually quite effective even though I'm disappointed by aspects of the violence which we will get to Mm Can I come to you, Jeff, to talk about any of these kisses specifically and thoughts that you had about why they might be interesting? Obviously, <laughs> I want to talk about the curtain Cerise one, so you're welcome to talk about that if you would like and huh. have an opening salvo on that, but if you want to talk about <laughs> Brian. If you want to talk about Brian and Megan, you're welcome to as well. I want to
3: talk about all of them. And, and, and the fact that it what's going on downstairs is countered or juxtaposed with what's going on upstairs where there's two people in their underwear fighting to the death. You know, so I think it's the amped up sexuality is going on there. I, I like that you mentioned the hair because that was my first thought was that they have postcoital bedhead, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which adds to that level. I also think it's interesting in uh, what how many kisses are there three kisses two with brian Mm -hmm. and one with kurt it plays into that adolescent male fantasy right i mean in each one of them that poor guy is just being attacked by a beautiful woman who is Mm -hmm. throwing herself at him so poor brian is just uh, having tongues shoved down his throat all over and then so is Kurt and the voyeuristic aspect I think that's implied by Kurt's kiss that after seven minutes in heaven uh, and I think you're right I hadn't caught that Mav that that's exactly what that that is but she turns and she says oh did I not do it right and everybody's just kind of smiling and blushing <laughs> that they were all watching them make out for seven minutes is um, <laughs> a lot of strange stuff which then has to be supplanted by bouncing from room to room to fight people I think the fact that they're all put together also heightens the sexuality of it, that it's going from one kiss to another kiss to another kiss in immediate succession. And maybe that's why I said, you know, is this some kind of high class British swingers party or something? Because it seems like they literally walk in the door and then we get this grabbing and kissing Hmm. going
1: on. Yeah, I mean, I'll just highlight one thing that you mentioned, Jeff, in terms of the adolescent fantasy thing. I mean, that can be a way of managing the sexuality to have the man not necessarily exercising his sexuality, but rather attacked by the women you know that can be like a presence and absence thing going on there
3: absolutely the young male reader who's who's looking at this is as much as they may say oh yeah i want to be the manly one the one who's in charge the captain britain or whatever the ultimate fantasy in that for young heterosexual boys is that these women can't resist you right they're just literally going to throw themselves at you and fight over you and so on which seems like a nice switch from I don't want to go back. I know you guys have covered things in other podcasts, but we're just a few issues before the romance the triangle was between Brian and Kurt over a woman fighting over a single woman. So this becomes a bit of a change, I think, to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, seeing us still playing with love triangles, but that well, it hasn't shifted because, you know, Courtney, who he thought was Courtney, was sort of involved before because we often talk about it as a triangle and it was at points a quadrangle, but it's just she disappeared from the narrative for quite some time. So we often don't talk about it in that sense. But all right, I want to talk more about this Kurt and kiss though, because obviously I've got thoughts about it and uh, I would push back a little bit on the normativeness of about of it like unsurprisingly because this is a very important kiss to me in terms really? of some of the ways that it is I'm not, not being, normative yeah i'm
2: not i'm not joking here I, i'm i'm actually surpri- i mean i'm actually surprised that's not the take that um it's not what i expected I, I i i mean i knew we'd talk about it but i didn't think that you'd think it was as important i didn't think you'd like it as much as you clearly appear to <laughs> really
1: yeah, yeah you didn't think that i would enjoy Kurt Wagner being seized by a big strong lady and then kicking up his tail, kicking up his leg in a connotatively feminine gesture of arousal before his uh,
2: <laughs> fluid I, tail <laughs> gets
1: tied into knots. <laughs> no, I,
2: I, no, I, I get how Alan Davis looked into the future and drew this specifically with you in mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, he knew that one day there would come a woman who would, who would, who would be birthed to be the. Unofficial PR manager of Kurt Wagner, and that's what he was looking for. I just didn't think it worked as well, and I thought you'd think it was pandering. So I'm surprised, because I I, I, I I, understand why it's supposed to work. I didn't feel like it did, and I actually expected you to say that. That's all.
1: Really? Well, now I kind of yeah. want to hear you talk about that. I mean, I'll, I'll make I'd my little you, pitch. I'd rather you well, go first. I'll make my yeah. pitch for it, yeah. I mean, it's important to me in a variety of ways. I mean, the fact that it is a big, strong lady really matters, and there can be a way for that to be read as funny, you know, a man being humiliated by a big, strong lady. But I think the fact that Kurt is not humiliated really matters, mm-hmm. the fact that he's yeah. into it and like visibly into it and that we get a play of kind of power and submission here you know she seizes him and kisses him and you know sexually assaults him if this was reality but you know he's a teleporter sure. he could leave if he wanted to so let's mm-hmm. let's kind of accept that we get the focus on her very strong arms you know holding him very very tightly and then we get in the second panel so this is the the four panels in the middle the part that comprises the kiss we get him matching her power so we get sort of an exchange of power and submission there and then we have Kurt second Coming to the kiss and that's when we have him kicking up the leg which in classic Hollywood is a stand in for sexual arousal related mm-hmm. to you know ways of expressing arousal under censorship so it's a very usually for women yeah. and then of course the last panel where he's sighing and just totally content and that very complicated symbol which is his tail which we've talked about as being a gender fluid symbol in the past his tail that both threats and squeezes we see it it's you know tied into knots there which Davis has done very deliberately and yeah i think that this to me is a good nightcrawler scene in the sense that the best sexy nightcrawler scenes to me have a lot going on in terms of what this character might mean it's sort of raising a lot of different possibilities for reading this character and i think that this is a very rich scene on that level and again as a fellow big strong lady i kind of <laughs> like <laughs> i kind of like you know seeing that play out and specifically seeing Kurt be seduced and infatuated with a woman who's not necessarily beholden to earthly gender norms. I sort of think there's a lot of possibility there. That's my that's my pitch. I what do you think about the you.
3: panel below that, Anna? Post-Kiss, where Kirk can barely stand, he's leaning on her, she innocently asks, did I not do it right? And the others are, they're like lighting their cigarettes afterwards, right?
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I love it in the sense that Nightcrawler's a sexy character, and they all watched and got off off on him enjoying (laughs) becoming submissive to this big strong lady so to me that's another element of what I do like about it, because there's another way that you could do this where, again, Kurt was being laughed at, right? He's not being laughed at. They are genuinely turned on by what just happened. Like, we're all in this together. And I think that's sort of a knowingness that is very different from laughing at Kurt. We're sighing with Kurt rather than laughing at him. And I think that that really matters in terms of how this scene plays.
0: One of the things that I kind of like about it, and I don't know if I can express this very well, because I think think you've really nailed it, Anna. I, I like the idea that Kurt having this encounter with a literal alien um, who brings forward sort of, a, a, as you said, um, a non-normative gender and sexual behavior. I, I like how this is actually a wedge towards a greater intimacy between them, not just a sexual encounter. Because I think Kurt is a character who's got this fluid sexuality that we've talked about so much, but he tends to feel restricted by normative society, and he tends to express it through um, things that are socially acceptable, right? Like the, the whole swashbuckling persona. So so having him in that moment, Cerise just makes out with him, it's just a thing to show the other people, right? It doesn't mean anything. I think there's a dawning awareness in Kurt that this is a human being who can actually unlock aspects of his sexuality and at a very kind of not just purely sexual level, but obviously, as I said, kind of intimate and romantic as well. So I think it lays a really good foundation for that relationship in a charming and quirky way.
1: Well, it's a meet-cute, right, between the two of them. Yeah. So if it's a meet-cute, what is it establishing about what the nature of this relationship is going to be? And I do think it's interesting in the context of like the machoification of Kurt that, that Jeff brought up earlier too. I don't want to say that's completely happening critically because we we're going to talk more about what Davis does with Kurt and some of the ways that he continues with sort of that macho thread for Kurt and we will see that in the relationship with Cerise too But we'll talk about that in future issues but here I still think it's interesting the way multiple beats for Kurt are set up which does again to me mm-hmm. speak to kind of the complexity of the character you know he's macho in that earlier scene we see him sort of have a moment of macho-ness even within the kiss you know where he's matching Cerise's power and again I can't emphasize enough like the visible muscles in her arms and like his posture kind of pushing back into the kiss, but then sort of her greater strength subsumes him. It's just really deliberate and really well done. Yeah, I don't know. Again, to me, it's just raising a lot of different possibilities for how to read this character. And it's also raising the possibility that types of sexual attraction and gender are more complicated than that. He can still be masculine and yet enjoy experiencing connotatively feminine sexualities.
3: I'm wondering, I was struck by, and I'm flipping back through some of the scenes uh, how much Circe is set up as sort of this uh, trope of born sexy yesterday, right? Yep, like, yep, yep. he doesn't know, oh, is this, you know, is a lip massage common? How do I do Did mm-hmm. I do it right? And just a few pages <laughs> earlier saying, uh, on my world, neither male nor female forms emotional bonds, right? So we know she's completely innocent in yep. regards to this sexuality, even though she's a foot taller than him and a lot stronger and so on, he still gets <laughs> to be the one who's going to instruct her, which I thought was an interesting twist maybe mm-hmm. to keep her a little more feminine despite her size and strength.
1: Yeah I will say I know Mav wants to talk about that no, because no, no. He, but yeah. but just like quickly just quickly like that is my complaint about it would be like her mm-hmm. suggested lack of agency because of her unawareness of what she's doing. Definitely which that's is, present.
2: Which is exactly why I thought you'd hate it. <laughs> like, like that was that was really it because uh, so what I said at the very beginning was I read this and I said this was written with future Anna in mind and and I know why she's supposed to like it and I expected you'd hate it because she is born sexy yesterday. I don't mind him having a relationship with a beautiful female um, alien lady and in fact I said at the very beginning of our episode that I was going to be a little critical of it and it's going to sound like I hate it. I actually don't. I actually like it. I like the relationship between Cerise and Kurt. What I don't like is that it came out of nowhere really. Cerise has done nothing since she appeared except for shoot some pretty lights and basically say nothing. <laughs> we know nothing about her she has no story what's happened is i am supposed to look at this and say i read teen titans i know what's going on and they condensed a year and a half of Wolfman and Perez storytelling with Starfire and Robin slash Nightwing into two pages. That's what happened. Like that you, you, you had her give the speech of she's never mentioned this on my world. Men and women don't form uh, emotional attachments. She's never said that before. That was like something that she said just here so that we could establish, okay, we have a little back back backstory about her world, which we've never had so that she can break it two pages later so that we can rush through the entire will they or won't they er um, era of Corey and Dick and basically get to doing the Nightwing and Starfire story so that Davis doesn't have to deal with the love triangle anymore, which we know he hates. I like it. I think it's interesting. I felt like it was rushed. I felt like it was a lot of shortcuts to get to the good part of watching them kiss because we still don't know anything about Cerise. She still is nobody. She's a cute lady who fell out of the sky to give Kurt something to do so that he doesn't try to steal Megan anymore and I thought you'd be offended by that that was my problem with it which you even said okay that that is your that's the thing that is the problem that you had with it as you said I just thought it would be a bigger problem and I thought it might get in the way I I thought you were going to complain about getting in the way of trying to enjoy your sexy Kurt scene
1: I think the visualization of this scene is enough for me to forgive it (laughs) which I
2: know like is like yeah so you get where I'm coming from yeah yeah, I do I do
1: on the narrative level and I'm going to have complaints about the Cerise and Kurt relationship. relationship moving forward Um, there are going to (laughs) be kisses between them that I like less than this kiss but to me sort of the visualization of this kiss elevates it and I mean I'm up two minds about it because there are different ways of reading the born sexy yesterday trope and this variation of it of her being an alien that as I mentioned before you know potentially isn't beholden to earthly gender or sexual norms which creates a deviance in that character depending on her level of agency and there is a question here of her level of agency but is it that she doesn't know what what she's doing, or is it that she doesn't care enough about norms and is just going to do what she wants to do? And that's not really clear based on what's written here. And obviously, it would play a lot better if we knew anything about Cerise other than her name, right. which we do not up to this
2: point. Right. And I'm curious, so I, well, I know from, from previous episodes and just from knowing Anna that you're not a Titans fan, but I believe Jeff and Andrew have more familiarity. So, yeah. I mean, is it just me? Do you guys also think that... like? I think that we're just supposed to look at her and go, OK, I can just insert enough Starfire in here to make this story work. Like, I think they're asking me to do the work for them. Is that fair?
0: I think it's fair. I didn't think of it when I was reading it. But as soon as you're saying it, yeah, you can see a lot of those those Corey Dick beats.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you yeah, know, that's part of the whole genre fiction thing, right? That he can just jump ahead. We've got an alien, hot alien and a mutant. We know where that goes uh, in superhero costumes. One question, though, you guys are far more into this, and I haven't read back through all the earlier issues. Reading just this issue first again, it seemed coincidental that she just picked Kurt. These others kiss, and so she just grabs the nearest guy. And starts mm-hmm. making out with him. Is that fair or he's was it flirting one. beforehand? Was there sexual yeah. tension? No.
2: Nope. No, he's the single one that we it had to be straight and Brian's clearly spoken for. He's the one that we can do something with. It makes him a convenient pairing because he had been in a love triangle and this definitively ends it, which Davis has been trying to do. This says no more love triangle. Kurt has his own girlfriend now. That's that's my problem with it. It's too neat and tidy. I think that if they'd flirt if he longed for her at all, if he'd had one, Kurt likes to have sexy dreams about women that he has crushes on. It's happened before, <laughs> right? It's never happened with Cerise. There's never been any acknowledgement that he finds her attractive. He once noted that she kind of looked like a white lady, like when he <laughs> first met her. And I mean, that's like it. Like when she was like, "What do, what do humans look like?" And it was and it was Kurt and a bunch of aliens, and he's like, "Mostly like you." That's the only acknowledgement of what she even looks like. He's never said anything about you're so strong or you're so sweet. They've never had a. Person personal conversation. They've never talked about her home world before. This is literally, okay, she's cute and everybody else is kissing, so I'm going to do that. If I'm
1: going to be fair to how this plays out in the future, the kiss is more of a meet-cute rather than, because Mm -hmm. they're not going to be in a relationship after this issue. It is going to take them quite a while to actually be Mm -hmm. in a relationship, and it is going to take quite a while for Kurt to realize that he actually has feelings for her. So I don't know, my argument for it as a meet-cute would be Kurt realizing something sexually about himself through this interaction with Cerise. And that can be a read on it too, although I don't know Mm -hmm. that necessarily Kurt doesn't already know he likes likes to be taken in hand by strong women, because I think he already knows that about himself, but at the same time, you know, that's definitely the aspect of this that particularly intrigues me.
2: But yeah, this is the start of it, though. This is, it, it just, it comes out of nowhere, other than the fact that, of course it's going to happen, because she's cute and he's cute. Like, that that was my issue with it. <laughs> I agree, I agree.
3: It's missing, and that's why the randomness of, he's just the one standing next to her. Like, it could have been tartan pants, dude. It could have been Betsy, or, or you know, they could have made it more interesting she doesn't know that female female kisses are inappropriate or at this party or whatever not i don't mean that they're inappropriate but that right but it's not the norm that they're going for so yeah it 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 did strike me as random rather than true love Mm -hmm. uh right off the bat
2: but i do agree that it's sexy and I also agree that Anna sold it really well for the reasons that you like it. Like, <laughs> like, I understand like, I understand why it's enough. Like, I, like when you're saying the big strong woman when you' like when you're giving the reasons that you like it, I understand why it's like if we're keeping score, I have one problem f- with it and you have 10 things that you like about it. So you know, I, I get why I, it's enough. Like I get why the balance is, is you said it yourself. It turns it enough to where it's like, okay, yeah, I'll forget it. I, I, I get that.
1: But, but. Yeah, it's pretty much impossible if you're going to be mad at the surrogacy that that scene enables sure. mm-hmm. for this like strong lady literally reaching out and grabbing Nightcrawler and taking what she wants, <laughs> which is how it's drawn, even though the agency yes. isn't there on a plot level. But um, yeah, just one tiny thing. And then I do want to move on and talk about the, <laughs> the less happy violence stuff. But I don't know. I almost like the fact that it potentially could just be physical. And I don't think their relationship ends up being that but I don't know I mean does it matter that there isn't like an emotional connection maybe they're just like you're hot you're hot let's do this thing and I would be okay with that too In this context But
2: I would be less so This is a weird conversation I don't like Born sexy yesterday So I'm just going to fuck I'm okay with Yeah, born sexy, yeah, yeah. I'm okay with Born sexy yesterday So I'm gonna fall in love I'm mm. less okay with And, and I, I know it seems like a weird uh, Like a weird, I'm also okay with I know what I'm doing And so I'm gonna fuck I, I don't like Born sexy yesterday So let's do it That wouldn't work for me Because She explicitly says She doesn't understand anything As opposed to yeah. Starfire so, like, there were a lot of complaints in the reboot of New Fifty Two when oh, yeah. when, Cor- uh. when Corey was well, well, but no, but the complaint, the complaints were, oh, she's just being slutty, and I was okay with it. I didn't think the story was. I thought the story was really crappy. But I'm okay with Corey in the 70s was saying, I believe in a world where people can just have relationships based on just pleasure. It doesn't have to be relationships. She was saying that very far back and Dick saying, no, 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 monogamy, monogamy. That's like early teen Titan stuff. So I'm okay with Corey saying, no, I'm choosing to have sex for pleasure because she'd earned it. Even though she appeared to be born sexy yesterday, she was always deeper than that. Now the story where it happens is also really bad. So, (laughs) but I'm okay with the con with the concept in a way that where cerise specifically announces herself as naive so then i wouldn't be i wouldn't like it just being i'm naive so let's explore having a sexual relationship that mm, that's gross yeah (laughs) maybe
0: to kind of work through it a little bit i think because i I agree with the things that literally everybody is saying i think maybe it doesn't work for cerise as a character but i do think it works for kurt oh sure sure kurt is a character (laughs) who's like his character arc is largely tied to his sexuality and gender expression so for him to develop a feelings for Cerise based on her capacity to show him new ways of exploring that I oh, think yeah. that's more mm-hmm. than sexual right I think I think that
3: opens mm-hmm. a lot of possibilities
1: mm-hmm. yeah I think there's the complaint that we keep coming back to though is like it's a good scene, not such a good scene for Cerise yeah. necessarily
3: mm-hmm. right which is why you don't get the born sexy yesterday alien guys dropping from the sky right it, it changes the dynamic so much but I do think we're willing to be forgiving i mean maybe we're not being so forgiving right now but generally in the comic book format that this is one page of them kissing and we expect the serial we know they'll get back to it they'll explain it they'll develop the relationship otherwise it's just jarring and potentially sexual assault um Mm -hmm. which we didn't know existed in the 90s right
2: <laughs> well, we're starting to. It was there were when this book's published. I think we'd be a little weirded out if it were a sexual assault towards a woman. I think we're getting to a point right. where we're getting past it. I think we're a little early. I think we're still. This is a pre-Mary Kay Letourneau world, right? Like we we are still in a world where oh, dudes are just lucky if that happens. So, I, uh, yeah,
3: <laughs> right. And I think that's where the purely sexual symbolism works. You know, it's just a kiss. It's not sexual result, it's just a kiss as the excuse at the time. I mean, I think things are different now, but or our awareness of it is.
1: Well, I mean, I think the conceit of superpowers plays into that as well. I mean, you can experiment with like being dominated in a superhero space when there are conceits of superpowers right that is something that we've talked about you know on the pod before in terms of like experiencing voyeurism and we've talked about S&M on the pod before a little bit actually not that much but a little bit well you better but be ready the for the, next the issue then but yes I know <laughs> in the context of the scene though I mean like I did mention it I mean you know the fact that we know Kurt's a teleporter he could leave this situation and so even though a hundred percent I like have feelings about ooh the sexual assault aspect of it there is like a sense that we're supposed to be okay with it because we know he's not disempowered in the context of it and there's like an implied agency because of the conceit of superpowers it sounds like I'm trying to like excuse it or something and I'm, I'm really not but you know we talked about this in the warlord issue too you know how it works in these spaces in which you know power works differently than it does in the real world so what are the boundaries of what consent is when you're talking about people who can't be hurt for instance right Right. And it does sort of change. It doesn't change it because it is still agency is agency and it is what it is. But it still becomes a more complicated conversation often when you're talking about the nature of these bodies in these particular types of spaces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: I think it also works well metaphorically again, you know, the whole mutant metaphor thing. But it's an interracial kiss. Right, like they're different skin colors. It's written off as, okay, one's blue and one's an alien, but it's a very safe way in the time period to have an interracial romance introduced.
1: Oh yeah, we've talked about Nightcrawler and race like a few different times on the pod. So like, yeah, I'll leave that to our listeners to kind of (laughs) parse out because we've talked about the good and bad of those readings, but it is certainly um, something that you could read into that scene for sure, I'll say that. All right, let's segue to talking about the less fun violence. We're giving it a shorter shift than we gave the other stuff. But um I do want to talk about okay. Let's just start with the Alison thing and I'll I'll ask it to you, Jeff. How did you read this? Is this like a classic example of fridging? Is this more complicated than that? What was your sort of mileage on this?
3: It seemed struck me as classic fridging, right? I mean, she's in her 90 when it happens. She's just done some split leg kicks, and she's not just killed, but she is her her neck is broken, her back, her arms and her legs have all been crushed. So she is brutally left for dead, which other people are not. It gives them great motivation. But boy, yeah, it seemed like a very convenient death of, of all the people at this party who could have been killed.
2: Most expendable.
3: She was the most <laughs> expendable and brutally mm-hmm. so. No, no reason to add mm-hmm. in all that detail. She's dead. She's dead. But they could literally put her in a freezer at this point. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, I'll let the other two of you talk about it, but it did really strike me that this was a escalation of Jamie's violence in the sense that things got real you know things got really real in terms of him actually breaking her body in multiple ways and leaving her as a shattered corpse on the floor that's quite different than the ways he was sort of bending people's bodies and stuff before in like the manga world and then everything reset to normal and it's like there were stakes there but they weren't these types of stakes and yeah this is an uncomfortable moment I get that it's supposed to be uncomfortable I have feelings about whether it's responsible in its use of that discomfort but um, yeah. I, I had thoughts I wanted to get you to talk about it Andrew because I know that you, you've been critical before of what I mean we could talk about what Davis did to Betsy Braddock who appears in this issue as well like interestingly so what were your thoughts about it Andrew?
0: I, I think I can be like succinct and brief because I really want to hear Mav's points because I know we're already going to disagree but um, okay. what I would say in terms of the difference between Courtney and Alisand I think the way that you measure the, the life force of a character is the stories that they have left to tell. And, and for okay. me, Courtney was done. Uh, and I think that's why her death was efficient as a storytelling device. Uh, it, it took the story in new directions. This one, Alisandt has been set up for so long. We've, we've started to get some cool bits uh, about her and she had a whole ton of stories left to tell so snuffing that off to me that's the murder right is the death of those stories so for me this is fridging in a way that courtney ross wasn't to me but that's hmm. my personal perspective
1: i about. mean just br- just briefly too, like alison had been being set up almost since the beginning of the series as a romantic foil for kurt as well but that got dropped sort of when mm. davis took over but that had been seeded in multiple issues um both alternate reality and in the in the present realities so yeah there was a lot that seemed like was being set up for that character and to just have her taken away here i mean again you can argue that the shock of it is the point or something i'm not sure if i buy that but anyway Mav, do your bit on it because maybe that's what you can argue i'm not sure um
2: i agree with every single word um andrew just said except for i have the opposite come uh, (laughs) i come i come away (laughs) with the opposite feeling i think he is absolutely right as the which is to say that i think there was more stories that you could tell with her, but I don't think that Davis was interested in those stories. Um, I mm. I think that um, a fridging, we use that term, we just throw it away a lot because of you know, popular criticism versus academic criticism, people will just say fridging, killing of a female character, that's it and I don't think that's fair, I think that in the no. most classic exper- I- I- example in the actual fridging, the specific woman in a refrigerator, which most people can't even name her name was Alex, Um, but <laughs> Alex exists just to die she has no other purpose, people might be upset about it, but when they invented Kyle Rayner, they knew they were killing Alex four issues later. Her entire lifespan is just his origin story. Like, that's it, right? That's the only reason she's there. She exists for the same reason as Batman's parents. Now, you might not like that, but that's why she's there. She's there to die for his origin. Alisandre is different. Because Alessand had storylines to tell. So she is fridged in the problematic way that a Gwen Stacy is fridged or a Barbara Gordon. I don't really care that Alex is, is killed in, in Green Lantern because I have no feelings for her. She There's no interesting Alex stories. She's literally just there so that Kyle has a reason to seek revenge. Alisande is a character. That said, she is a character to where I would argue the same thing that Andrew just did about Courtney. I feel that for Alisande in a way that I didn't feel that for Courtney because I think that at the moment in which Courtney claims agency in that story that she died in, I think that she becomes interesting in that story in a way that she was just kind of a superfluous girlfriend character up until then. I would rather see Courtney as a confident woman New into this world, but trying to juggle humanity and superhero didn't fight for Brian, then see, oh, evil lady. Like, I don't I never cared about Saturn. Nine. <laughs> I've never cared about Saturn. Uh, Sat- Saturn. Nine. I like. I think she's a stupid character, and I think this story <laughs> drops the Saturn Nine angle, and we've not even mentioned it here because it's just over now, and we don't care. Nothing ever yeah, came of that. Whereas I best. think, yeah. Whereas I think Alessand, Alisand, we're saying she's got interesting potential. Alessand only appeared in twelve issues of Excalibur. I know, I, I checked. That's it. But
0: an uncanny X Men. But she's in. She's in it. uncanny.
2: She's in uncanny X Men where she had interesting storylines going on. Except for the guy who wrote them no longer works at Marvel at this point. She is literally an extra character who they had to—I mean, they, they didn't have to kill her, but if they hadn't, she was just going to be floating around in the ether. They Like, they were never going to do it. No one was going to use her. They So she's a character without much backstory as far as the Excalibur readers are concerned. She's got interesting stuff in X-Men. That's not gonna come back because Chris Claremont's gone and he's not coming back for decades. Like like it's not I mean it's gonna be decades before we're gonna see him on that book again. So she's extra, and I think this does something interesting that creates story rather than just shock value. Is it shocking? Yes, but I don't think it's just shocking. So I think she is fridged. She's definitely fridged, but I feel like she's fridged in the same way as Gwen Stacy, which is to say, something came of it. It wasn't come it was it right? Maybe not, but it wasn't gratuitous.
1: Yeah, no, I see what you're saying, Mav. And Mm. I agree that it's important to talk about the specific nature of specific instances of fridging, because they do have different qualities the same way, you know, assault and reality has different qualities. And it doesn't make sense to talk about everything as exactly the same, even though Things can be bound up in the same rape culture, the same culture of sexual violence. They can all be related in that sense, but they still have different qualities. And I totally agree with you on that point. But there's definitely for me an extreme discomfort to the scene, especially mm-hmm. the way it oh, plays yeah. out. Poor.
2: Because <laughs> yeah, I'm not like
1: it's hard Yeah, no, no, yeah. I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> I know you, you wouldn't. But yeah. I mean, just to put a finer point on it, like Alison has been set up as a character who she's masculine coded in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, through her uniform and through her unemotional. Demeanor, and again, these are stereotypes, right? I'm not saying that you know, I don't We've know. You've never anything seen about her in her underwear or- before. We've yeah, never exactly. seen her in her
2: underwear. It's literally we made her sexy for this issue so yep. that we could kill her. Right. That's weird. She yeah. it, she could have Jamie could have killed her in killed her in her in her brigadier suit and it would have been different and yeah. more and, and more pure to her character. I don't think we saw her in her underwear when she was changing into the X-Men costume in Uncanny. We saw her in the bondage gear that Amanda made for her briefly, but like
1: Yeah, I mean she was it. still wearing the double-breasted suit when yeah. Kurt flirted with her in the right. alternate universe. So, I mean, here I mean again the gratuity of her stripping down to her nightie. She's posed in front of the mirror with her butt facing us. We have the close up of her open lips to see her applying lipstick. She is hyper feminized by that presentation. We get the brief moment of action, which, as Jeff pointed out, is sexualized because of the nature of her clothes and because of the nature of her pose. She's like showing him, you know, <laughs> what's between her legs as she's kicking him in the face. So there's a lot going on there. And then the brutality with which she's killed. She's not just killed her entire body is broken and we see mm-hmm. the corpse on the floor with a dark shadow that's suggestive of blood and oh boy it's just really a lot I, I don't know I don't mm-hmm. like I feel like I could rant about it because I just... I'm tired of this shit and I was it was a real downer in this issue where I like really was looking forward to talking about the fun kisses and I was just like I, th- I thought you mad that I thought that this was the next issue as well and I was like oh right this <laughs> and I, yeah, no, it, 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 I mean I wanted to it's, yeah.
2: it's bad I mean I, I yeah it's 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 bad I just I think compared to the Courtney one where I, I felt like there were stories to tell with Courtney mm-hmm. there could have been stories to tell with Alisand but it was pretty clear no one was ever going to do it and I think think that makes the difference like uh, like I feel like it was this or she was going to be fading into in obscurity never like it's, you know, once this is over, how, how often have we even seen Alistair in comics in the last 20 something years, right? No one cares.
1: Well, can I ask a question of all three of you because I was curious about this having to do with you know me reading this comic as a woman and how much of that was factoring into how I read it. But the violence against women throughout the issue really stood out to me, and I don't know if it's just because it was heightened because of the Alison thing, but there's you know a scene with Cerise being whatever grabbed by Jamie, whoever he grabs people, which is very graphic as well. Her spine is kind of implicitly being broken or bent in this kind of dramatic moment of pain. We get him do doing a semi-similar thing to Kitty. We get him mm-hmm. dragging Psylocke, or brutally beaten body. And the men suffer here too. But we also get a scene of Megan on the floor, you know, looking very afraid and yeah. helpless. And it just really stood out to me here. It was sort of like five separate instances of exaggerated violence against women in which women were really humbled and made to look afraid and that bothered me in this issue and I didn't know it's clearly deliberate I mean he made these choices but I mean did that stand out to the three of you as well I mean I'll ask you about it Jeff I mean you've done such great writing about female action heroes across genres I mean did any of this stand out to you?
3: Yeah it did I mean just the way they're represented and and in such quick succession that yeah um, yeah. you know like you said her body is contorted with her ass out and so on while he's whatever Jamie is doing is her spine or whatever, she still has to do the erotic bent broken back pose whereas right below that tartan pants dude just has a funny stretch uh, when it happens to him but the women are and then kitty is twisted in her mini skirt you know they're sexualized because of the outfits and then shot in the head dragged across the floor like you said it seemed like a very big switch and then you find out that courtney slash saturnine is actually a dominatrix and the the two women with guns behind her have their makeup done and so on and then there's a weird moment and i don't want to get off the um the violence against women part but there's a strange moment and i wonder if it stuck out to anybody else that brian gets shot with a missile or something and is able to get up and stagger around unlike the women but she tells him that that little missile was a super hypersonic it impregnated you uh your thick hide with a drug it, it the whole impregnated <laughs> thing, really strange to me as a a way to put it so but maybe we could talk about that later i was just curious what you all thought about that but the uh the violence against women in this one seemed gratuitous for gratuity sake and it was hard to read it did not age well
1: yeah I mean even just I mean there's two individual pages you know to highlight you know the one the one with Cerise is page 25 and then a couple of pages later the page that has both Megan being we see her get shot in the head you know and specifically before that you know we see her disheveled hair and her looking up at her attacker with a look that I honestly don't think we've seen on her face before you know that level of sort of fear and confusion and helplessness really Please... Triggering for you know if you're if you're somebody who has seen or thought about those situations before, and then to see Betsy have something similar happen to her further down the page, and I mean again the thing that I alluded to with with Betsy before, um Alan Davis wrote and drew the issue in which she was blinded by Slaymaster, um yeah. so having him revisit the character and kind of do this to her again is sort of a context that we can bring to this as well, and yeah honestly I wasn't really sure what to do with it. We've been very celebratory of Alan Davis's kind of representations of women. You know, both on a storytelling level and on a visual level a lot of the time as being better than a lot of artists of the era. But God, this issue was just rough. And I was just wondering about the intentionality of it. You know, what is he going for here?
0: Well, one of the things that I think is maybe contributing, probably unintentionally, is just the fact that they are in dinnerware. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. As opposed to the potential power they might receive from being in their superhero costumes. I, again, exactly as Jeff said, it's a visceral thing. There, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is. I don't think it has a lot of purpose. You could argue that it specifically codes Jamie's villainy and misogyny, but that would be an incredibly charitable reading. This just seems like too much.
2: It does, but I think it is intentional. Don't, don't you think it? I mean, you said you, you think it's charitable you intentional. I'm not saying it works. I'm saying I think it is intentional because there's no reason for them to be at a party other than to draw them in these outfits, right? There's a lot of setup in this story to set the table of where Davis wants you to know they are. Kitty is the sexiest outfit that she has worn by choice in this series. Um, She's been a cheerleader. She's hated it. She's been dressed by Rachel. She's been dressed by Megan. She's been dressed by um, the queen of whatever world. Kitty just chose to put on a sexy dress for this party, which is weird because we are very clearly trying to establish what her age is in this one because we found out that Kylan, had only been kidnapped a year ago. So there's there's little details like that. But then you go and you have Ali Sand Specifically, put on um, and when well, she's not putting on a nighty, she's changing from her outfit. But she's basically like, "I'm going to go put on my pretty clothes now." There is a lot of putting them in this regal, glamorous way. Like the women are glamorized, you know. It doesn't have to be. You know, this opens with Psylocke and Britain like fighting, right? Like in their in their superhero outfits. We've put them in this situation so that it can be all the more shocking when we eviscerate them. And does it age poorly? Yes, but I think it ages exactly the way it's supposed to. Like I like, I mean, I, I think I agree with everything about it, how uncomfortable it is. I think I think it might be going too far, but I think he was trying to go too far because this is not like there are other people who draw this way all the time. Davis doesn't. He chose to, right? He chose to give you the glamour so that it would be all the more shocking. For me, I mean you talked about the, the ones with um the the broken bodies. For me, it's the one where Ali San gets killed when Jamie cracks her and breaks her back and neck, that's the one that's like the most viscerally violent to me. And I feel like, he wants me to view it that way. Like, I think he wants to be horrific. So I think it's intentional. Your mileage may vary whether or not it works, but I think it is supposed to make you feel that way.
1: Again, I think it would be different if we were talking about equal opportunity violence here, yes. but the fact that it goes to the well of like misogynistic violence four times, is <laughs> just a yeah. lot. And like Brian and Kurt do not suffer in the same, Brian and Kurt and Alistair do not suffer in the same way that the women do.
3: I was just going to point out that the disproportionate of it, we get to see them being sexually aggressive for three pages, three different mm-hmm, kisses mm-hmm. that the women are initiating. And then those two out of those women are then immediately punished for it. And one turns out to be the punisher, that she's the villain. So all three of them, they get that one moment of being sexually aggressive. And then, boy, are they punished yeah
1: Yeah, that really bugs me about it too in terms of all those lovely things that i said about the first part of this comic book (laughs) oh the second half of this comic book makes it hard (laughs) yeah because it does really read like that like we had this moment of sexual liberation and everybody's getting punished for letting their guard down and specifically Mm -hmm. as you said like for for their gender deviance in some ways right
3: right but not the men kurt's not None punished man. for yeah. having yep. let a woman manhandle them kind of thing yep mm-hmm.
1: i mean i almost want to argue that he is because he does let his guard down and that's part of it but i don't really want to argue that because it's too complicated and it's too much of a thing to bring up we're going to talk right. more about his leadership and future issues
2: yeah. he gets shot but it's relatively standard being shot yeah, for yeah book. Um, yeah you know, like i I'd, I'd argue if anything alistair gets broken a little more this early than Kurt or Brian do. Kurt and Brian both get broken in the ways in which one gets broken when they're in a superhero fight, you know? Yeah, it's just the mm-hmm. shot to the stomach. You know, I mean which I'm and obviously in real life would be awful. Yeah, but, in like, real life. Yeah. <laughs> but they're but they're shot but they're shot in the stomach all the time. Whereas Alistair is getting Jamie Braddock manipulated. Like you look at his eyes and his tongue bulging and everything. So like he like it's not as sexual, but at least it is at least there's a body horror element to it in a way that, that Kurt and Brian definitely escape.
1: Yeah, and I mean, Kurt and Brian have the classic things, you know, we have talked about this before on the pod and something like SM situations with female characters versus male characters and the women look frightened and helpless, whereas the men look aggressive. And we definitely see that playing out here in the Brian and Kurt scenes. They're reacting to the violence with sort of aggressive gestures and, and poses and facial expressions. Whereas, you know, I keep coming back to that one of Megan looking so afraid. I just hate images like that for, for female superheroes. It's just one of those ones that really gets me. I don't ever want to see her looking like that unless it's going to be handled really, really carefully, which this is not. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a couple, just, well, basically one more thing is that I wanted to ask you, Jeff, about that conclusion because you brought up Jamie coming out of the closet at the end of this issue, so... Out if closet. you have, yeah, <laughs> if you if you have thoughts about it, um, um, we've talked about Jamie before on the pod in various contexts, like, uh, so our listeners will be aware of his context. But he was an allegory for Margaret Thatcher's son in a previous issue, and is associated with sort of like excesses of imperialism in some sense. Um, it's not necessarily the context we have here. There are also sort of elements of deviant sexuality with him in terms of his physical portrayal but uh yeah I, i'm curious about your thoughts about it Jeff, because you did bring it up earlier
3: yeah and i'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that this is a, a the last page is something i do remember reading when i was younger the first time this was around and finding it the most shocking. Despite everything that's happened, suddenly they're showing Jamie with this wild expression and his head tilted. But more importantly, he is essentially naked, except for a little pouch um, on his thong. And, and clearly you can see a, a treasure trail of hair leading down to his crotch. And he's got bonds on his uh, ankles and wrists. But that's it. And it just seemed jarring in how explicitly sexual they were doing it because, you know, we see basically naked superheroes all the time, but they paint their bodies a certain color with the skin-tight costumes. This seemed really sort of like this return of the repressed, obviously thrown out there. Like, you guys are going to have a sexual party? Well, I'm here. What's going on upstairs? I'm the warning of what it can lead to or something. It, It was just a strikingly uncharacteristic moment, I thought, for... For the genre and for the book.
1: Yeah, I like so many of the things that you're bringing up there and how much that we can read that into Jamie's villainy too. You know, obviously like tropes having to do with villains being sexually deviant and that being part of their threat, but even just the composition of this page, like, oh boy, there's so much going on in this like closing splash page. <laughs> I mean, we have it broken up in the corner by like Saturnine's fetish boot with mm-hmm. the stand-in Nazi symbol on it in front of Brian, who's kind of humiliated on his knees in front of her and then jamie dragging betsy and just the many levels of like fetishistic sexuality going on in this image with three of these characters Well, two of them are twins and the third one is their brother so yeah i don't know there's a lot going on in that image but i, I like what you were bringing to it jeff
3: i think it, it's unnerving it's creepy uh the wild eyes but the the nudity strikes me as you know, in any other supervillain, they walk out of the closet and you can see every muscle and vein, Brian would immediately jump on them and they'd start tussling. But when the guy who comes out of the closet is naked, nobody wants to jump on him. You know, it's, it's a little too <laughs> obvious what's going on if that happens. So I, you know, I, I do give Davis a lot of credit for the way that he drew him as creepy and sexy in, in a way that we don't usually see in comic books.
1: I would call the intrusion of Jamie, despite it being complicated by those sexual deviance and village tropes a good example of shock value as we as we measure these things versus some of the bad examples of shock value that you know not that we ever want to break things down as good and bad as scholars but you know uh, I will say it in a more scholarly way and say a more productive shock than some of the other shocks potentially Um, let's move to some final thoughts and and wrap this thing up Uh, I'll go first because mine's just brief I liked the little exchange between Kitty and Kurt uh, after he she finds him breaking the boards And I I get what you mean, Mav, about the dialogue there being clunky, but I did like the signposting of him using passive techniques rather than than aggressive ones, which that's a nice like little, it's not a good character read because it's done too obviously here to just signpost that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of that being a way to understand Kurt's character, I like it being signposted because that is an interesting aspect of Kurt that I want to talk about more. I'm like, yeah, like he teleports and sometimes kicks people and everything. But yeah, he often is a character who fights in less traditional ways, which, you know, I'm always looking for those things from Nightcrawler. So I did enjoy that being signposted. And just like one other thing, I did enjoy Kitty mentioning Germany again, and he still won't talk about it because I'm still threatening to talk about it about the marvel comics presents um story on an episode so flagging it in case we come back to it
2: to i mean build on what you're saying i don't like i said i don't like it because of the directness of it and it's too it's too simple but i do i, I agree with you i like the character read i especially like not only the acknowledgement that kurt is a defensive fighter but that kitty is not like yeah he, yeah he he, expl- he just acknowledges that you're a ninja <laughs> and you know like let's not forget this you are a ninja and like you I, and, and you know i can hold my own too because you know we haven't really dealt with the fact that kitty's a murderer now and we're not going to so um <laughs> but like kurt knows that right it's a thing that i think is important so I do I do I do agree with you that there's a good character build there,
1: Andrew. If you have a final thought you want to sneak in before you have to run,
0: uh, sure. So I, I think one of the things that I, I like that Davis is doing is actually Betsy. I don't like the violence that she's treated with at the end of this issue, obviously, um, and I I don't like that she's wearing a, a sort of orientalist garb, um, which I think is doubling down on one of comics most terrible mistakes. But I do like her opening scene with Brian because like this was a time when once Claremont left, Psylocke became just sex bomb threat. To to Scott Summer's relationship to an absurd degree. Uh, and it seems like Davis is actually giving her some some agency and a character voice and some interesting kind of dynamics that I thought was cool. And I loved the background detail of Betsy riding Brian like a hoverboard. Yes, and, yes. such a perfect twin reunion kind of moment. So I think there was some good stuff with Betsy.
1: Yeah, I liked the opening scene too. And I liked their kind of, you know, you've done some great Claremont run threads about Betsy's ambition to be violent and be a warrior and I felt like I really was reading a lot into that opening scene and I did get a lot from it did you have a final thought Mav and then I'll give the last word to Jeff
2: okay a couple things first off oh yeah Farron's in this issue he gets beat up we can move on um <laughs> <Yep>. don't care <laughs> it, was, it was cute I, you know <laughs> right. cute. Mean, it's, it's kind of it's kind of weird because we because we talked about like uh oh these things that jamie does to all the men versus what jamie did to all the women and you know but, ja- but the first thing jamie does is bitch yeah. like Aaron yeah. into a tree and we yeah oh well I don't know. We, <laughs> no, we, like,
1: we, we keep cheering the violence against this child so i don't yeah. want to look at the wrong impression of us
2: <laughs> as andrew says he's got a very punchable face um mm-hmm. but no my my final thought and i have nowhere nowhere to. Go, Go with it other than this is a weird detail to bring up and then not do anything with is the acknowledgement that betsy and brian share a psychic link which is a thing that you could deal with other than the fact that like if they do then why did he think she was dead for the last oh god of comics Mm -hmm. because like like literally this series is predicated on the fact that brian doesn't know that betsy is alive that's why excalibur exists is because like i mean sure they've moved on it on from that but excalibur only exists because they thought that the x-men were dead and brian specifically his entire character arc has been about the trauma of losing his sister who apparently he can still psychically sense so you know oops (laughs) i don't know i don't know what to do with that it's just like weird continuity stuff like why would you mention because they're not going anywhere with it it's not like we need Hmm. him to to have a psychic link we could just say oh yeah we don't care about that storyline anymore but they brought it up which makes me just ask questions.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Jeff, did you have final (laughs) thoughts about this issue? Anything you do you want to spotlight before we leave it behind?
3: No, nothing to spotlight except how much fun it is. I mean, I'd forgotten how much fun Excalibur is. And there's certainly an energy and a dynamism to it. And I think it, you know, its its faults are the same as with all superhero comic books. But considering they are primarily Marvel B-listers, I think they do some incredible stories with them. And I had forgotten how much fun that is in this series, that they can play and they have the leeway with less iconic characters to try different things. Mm. Uh, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But, you know, it's a great series.
1: It's certainly a dense issue, and it's certainly... I I mean, this issue just has so much going on. I feel like we could have done three podcasts on it easily. I mean, as Mav said, it feels like at least two issues.
3: And it feels that way in the way they're jumping around, right? Like they're leaping from room to room and it's all so contained in this one little mansion, but boy, it's quick.
1: It is, it is. We've talked a lot about the domestic texture of Excalibur, but to have everything kind of taking place in that one location and yet to have so much going on, one of the things Excalibur does well. Um, Usually I spotlight a memorable memorable letter before we completely wrap up. I don't have one that I particularly want to spotlight other than we did have a a letter writer asking, where is Amanda Sefton? And (laughs) Terry Kavanaugh threatening that she might show up where you least expect her. We aren't going to see Amanda for a while, but Mm -hmm. hey, someone remembers she exists we'll be talking about her soon enough what must i do now kill them i can tell you nothing
3: my days are ended the gods of once are gone
1: forever it's a time for men it's your time i need you now more than ever no this is the moment that you must face at last to be king alone And you, old friend. Will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds. This one is done with me. So I think we will wrap things up there other than to say, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of all of your amazing writing and other things. So let us do that now. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what work of yours should they be rushing to check out?
3: Uh, All of it. It's all brilliant. Um, Take a look (laughs) at everything. Um, It's true.
1: It's true. I can vouch (laughs) for that, Jeff. It's true.
3: Well, thank you, Uh, but I was joking. But no, I am low key, no uh, Facebook page, no website, nothing like that, but everything's available. All the books are available through Amazon and so on. So and there's an author's page there. Uh, But thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I really enjoyed it.
1: Well, thank you so, so, so much again. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 56, things that go shriek in the night, in which things get weirder before they get better. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for various episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future your episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got lots of fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another sexy conversation. Thank you, Jeff, for lending us your insights. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.